Today, we will be speaking with Will Pyle. He will get us started with an introduction about himself, and then we'll jump to the talk about the post-communist era. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Will Pyle, and I am a professor of economics at Middlebury College. What is meant by the transformational recession that many countries encountered in their post-communist era, and why did the severity of this recession vary across different post-communist countries? Well, thank you, Max, for that that question, and and thank you as well for inviting me on your your podcast, the Finance Bro Podcast. Um, it's it's an honor to be with you. <laughs> the the transformational recession. We have to go back. We have to go back a quarter century. Uh, almost 30 years to uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s, when uh, countries in Eastern Europe and the, and the former Soviet Union uh, had made a decision that they wanted to change the way that they uh, run their economies, the way they organize their economies. And um, they were going to make a transition from communist central planning, uh, which is an economic system that was very popular in in parts of the world in the 20th century, a system that suppressed markets, market forces, and suppressed private property. They decided that they'd had enough of communist central planning, those countries, and they wanted to move towards markets and and private property. And uh, there are two dozen or so countries in the region uh, stretching from um, countries like Poland and uh, Hungary in the in the west, all the way uh, across the Eurasian landmass to to China and Vietnam in the east, and of course the biggest uh, of those countries is uh, was was Russia in terms of just landmass. But maybe we'll get to to Russia in a little bit. So we have these two two dozen countries that want to uh, to transition to markets and private property. And they go about it in the early 1990s in different ways, uh, but all of them, really with the exception of, of uh, the ones furthest east, China and Vietnam, all the others, the two dozen others uh, in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, they experienced this uh, recession, uh, a very steep recession. Um, Russia GDP went down by 40%. Uh, over a six-year period. Um, between 1991 and 1998, the economy just, just collapsed and only began to grow uh, again it, at the end of the, uh, the decade. And, and that wasn't unusual in the, the former Soviet uh, countries. Most of them experienced very large uh, recessions. Further to the West, in Central and Eastern Europe, the recessions were, were shorter, uh, on the order of a couple years and less deep. That is, the decline in GDP wasn't as uh, as significant. So you have this kind of interesting pattern in Central and Eastern Europe. There was less of a transformational recession than there was further to the east in the former Soviet Union in countries like Russia and Ukraine. And there's an interesting question as to why that was the case. Why did some of those countries that used to be communistic, just have a tougher time of it in the 1990s uh, than others. And maybe we can get into uh, discussing some of the, the reasons for that 
difference across countries back in the 1990s. But maybe for your listeners, one way to think about the importance of this issue right now is that when the former Soviet Union uh, or the Soviet Union broke up into 15 separate countries uh, at the end of 1991, when uh, communism collapsed and the Cold War ended, um, it was an empire, of course, and generally empires don't break up without some kind of uh, some kind of uh, struggle, violence. Uh, and at the time, in the 1990s, there was comparatively little violence, uh, and um, the world the world breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, but to some extent, what we're seeing now in in Ukraine. Uh, is, I think, the echoes of that breakup of the Soviet Union. And in, in part, it's, it's an echo that's related to the very difficult economic experience that uh, Russia specifically had during the 1990s. And to touch on the characteristics, the difference in, as you mentioned in your research, initial conditions between the countries that had an easier time with this transformation and those that struggled more. What is this idea of initial conditions and what are the characteristics to, for example, Central and Eastern Europe that allowed for smoother transition than further out East? Great question. So there's there, there, there were two theories at the time as to why some countries uh, had much deeper recessions than others, why countries like Russia and Ukraine saw a collapse in output of 40% over a period of six or seven years. Um, one of those theories was that it had to do with the policies, that is how quickly the economies liberalized, how quickly they liberalized prices, how quickly they privatized uh, productive assets, um, those sorts of things, how quickly they opened up to the world economy. The country, Some of the countries went slower than others. They just introduced liberalization and markets more slowly. So one theory is that it had to do with kind of the policy mix and how quickly those, those policies, those liberalizing policies were, uh, were implemented. The other theory as to why there is, and this touches on the phrase that you used, uh, the other theory as to why there was differences between say Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union had to do with uh, what were called at the time initial conditions. That is something about the differences in those countries prior to the date at which they made the commitment to move towards markets and private property. Maybe that difference was geographic. So some people said Central and Eastern Europe is just gonna have an easier time because geographically they're close to Western Europe and easier to access markets for exports and imports and foreign investment. Um, some people said uh, Central and Eastern Europe had more favorable uh, cultural conditions as well, because they hadn't existed under communism for so long. And so there were still people alive in the early 1990s who could remember prior to World War II what it was like to have markets and entrepreneurial uh, undertakings and how to start a business, that sort of thing. Those would be examples of initial conditions, and those varied across that big expanse from Poland in the West to uh, the countries of the former Soviet Union uh, in, the, in the East. Um, so those would be kind of e examples of the initial conditions. 
Um, most of the experts at the time thought that the pattern, and I'm grossly generalizing here, that the countries of the former Soviet Union did more poorly in the 1990s because of their, their policies were just poor. They didn't privatize in the right way, or they didn't liberalize their markets quickly enough. And um, a lot of the people associated with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, a lot of Western economic experts kind of embraced that idea. But some, I think, very perceptive people recognized that the policy difference between Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union could in part be a function of different initial conditions. That is, the policies themselves weren't kind of randomly assigned across countries. They were, it was perhaps easier for countries with better initial conditions, say good geography and less of a historical experience under communism, it was easier for them to implement, uh, quote, better policies. And so one of the things that, that I look at in my research, the, the article that I know you've read is well, how can we tell um, to what extent that variation that we see across the post-communist world and, and in terms of the depth and the length of the recession, how much of it was due to initial conditions and how much of it was due to policy? Now, moving towards a more specific case, what is it that occurred in Russia following the disempowerment of the planning bureaucracy that was previously in charge of the Russian economy and what happened in this transformation? Great. So um, in 1992, January 2nd, 1992, Russia had a new president. His name was Boris Yeltsin, the only president uh, Russia has ever elected with the exception of Vladimir Putin. Actually, there's one more exception, kind of small, but insignificant. Um, and Boris Yeltsin was president of Russia throughout the 1990s. And he surrounded himself with advisors who said, uh, we need to embrace a market economy. We need to put an end to the communist centrally planned economy. And so on January 2nd, 1992, they went from an economy where all the prices were fixed by government bureaucrats. There were no market forces determining prices like you've probably been learning about in your in your introductory economics courses, uh, all the prices were ter uh, determined by, by government bureaucrats. But overnight, Boris Yeltsin said prices are now free and market forces uh, will um, will determine prices. And then in the next couple of years, they liberal they privatized all the uh, the state owned enterprises, all these big factories. Uh, thousands and thousands of them in the world's largest uh, episode of privatization. And, uh, and so those were the two biggest reforms, privatization and market liberalization, price liberalization, and they threw open the country to, uh, to global trade. So anybody that wanted to import or export uh, to or from Russia, they could, they could do that. Overnight, it was just this dramatic transformation in the way uh, the economy was structured and the, the rules of the economic game. And so this, uh, that reform was followed up very soon after by this deep, deep recession in, in Russia. I mentioned it briefly between 1991 and 1998, uh, GDP collapsed by, by 40%. Uh, 
um, standards of living fell, life expectancy fell, inequality increased, um, all of those very dramatically. Uh, it was a really, really tough time. A lot of people were in jobs. Uh, they didn't may have not have lost their jobs, but they weren't being paid. They weren't being paid on time. Uh, it was just a, a, an incredibly difficult time, in part because Russians had been promised uh, under communism that they were guaranteed lifetime employment. And then all of a sudden, that promise was ripped away from them because obviously in market-based economies, we don't promise people lifetime employment. There is such a thing as unemployment and it's very difficult to uh, to deal with. And it's doubly difficult for you to deal with if you've been made that promise and then all of a sudden that rug is ripped out from, from under you. So it was a very, very difficult time. And so one of the things that um, my co-author do in this paper that, that, that you've read is we look at that time period uh, of the 1990s. And we try to assess to what extent uh, was the recession that Russia experienced, actually it's a depression, you know, a very severe depression uh, between 1991 and 1998. To what extent was it caused by uh, not the policy change so much as the initial conditions? Uh, so this goes back to your question about initial, initial conditions. Russia is in a sense like a lot of big uh, countries with smaller political territorial units inside it, a little bit like a lab uh, where there are differences across the country and you can use those differences to understand the relationship between say two different things happening or two different variables. Um, so in the same way that we study, for instance, those who study the U.S. economy, if they're interested in the effects of minimum wage laws, you can use the difference in minimum wage laws at the state level to, to study how minimum wage affects labor markets. So similarly in Russia, big country, which is not divided up into states, but it's divided up into provinces, and those provinces are divided up into districts, we can use the differences across those districts and provinces to understand the relationship between either, in my case of study, initial conditions or policies uh, and how they affect economic uh, performance in the, in the aftermath. Can you break down the concept of market vulnerability? and how this applied to Russia's transformation and how this was different across different spaces and regions of Russia. Great. So market vulnerability has, has uh, everything to do with initial conditions. So our argument in that paper is that some districts within Russia, you can imagine that there are like 2000 different districts within Russia. Those districts differ on the basis of decisions that communist central planners had made about where to locate some industries. So there are differences across different districts with respect to the industries that communist planners had put in those districts. And that made some of the districts more, more vulnerable to the liberalization of markets than other districts. Some districts just by virtue of what they inherited from communism, were better placed, some were worse placed to 
uh, perform well under newly liberalized markets with free international trade and free market prices. Uh, and so we try to define that vulnerability, that initial condition of districts in different ways. One of the ways that we define that, that vulnerability has to do with um, has to do with how, how important the manufacturing sector was in the district. That is, what is the per capita employment within the district in the manufacturing sector? Communism in East, Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union built up a very, very large and uncompetitive manufacturing sector. And it was capital intensive. They were using capital equipment that was outdated, that was not ready to withstand the forces of global competition. And so one of the ways that we measure that vulnerability is just how big was the manufacturing sector in a district? And we expected to find that in those uh, districts where the manufacturing sector was bigger, that the performance of the district economy would be worse once prices were liberalized. We measure market vulnerability in two other ways as well that are a little bit more complex to explain. I'm, I'm not sure if we have time to, uh, to go into them, but uh, suffice it to say that the three different ways that we measure kind of the vulnerability of different districts to market vulnerability correlates very strongly with the electoral support for Boris Yeltsin. So going back to, remember, Boris Yeltsin becomes the, uh, the president of Russia, actually becomes president in 1991 before markets are liberalized in 1992. And so we look at, well, what happens in the district to the vote for Yeltsin between 1991, before markets are liberalized, and then when he has to stand election again in 1996, after markets have been liberalized for a period of time. And what we find is that there's a big drop in support. The biggest drop in support for Yeltsin is in those districts that had a really, really large manufacturing sector. So you might ask, well, what sort of districts did Yeltsin do relatively well in if he's doing less well in the manufacturing sector? The regions where Yeltsin did relatively better uh, were the regions where Russia had a comparative advantage, was all set to enter the global marketplace and, and trade and compete. Those were sectors like natural resources, energy, minerals, um, upstream in indus industrial sectors like uh, petrochemicals, these sorts of things. Anything that had to do though with machine building and putting together inputs from different sectors, car manufacturing, uh, machine building, these sorts of sectors, Russia just wasn't ready for global competition. So we see that there's that very strong relationship between the initial conditions of market vulnerability and how uh, Yeltsin's electoral support um, panned out over the 1990s. And then we follow that analysis up by finding that in those market vulnerable regions, um, life expectancy decreased 
uh, dramatically relative to the less market vulnerable regions. The 1990s is, is a really depressing era to study because life expectancy in Russia dropped uh, for men, and particularly middle-aged men, not older men, but particularly for middle-aged men, um, just dramatically. And the behaviors that are associated with that, and we believe it's related to stress and job loss and economic dislocation, are heavy drinking, binge drinking. You can you can imagine, you know, Russian men drinking a lot of, of vodka, not very high quality vodka. Uh, a lot of them are just very frustrated. They're not able to provide for their families like they could before. Uh, they don't have uh, a sense of meaning in their life. Men tend to get more meaning out of their lives from job from their jobs than women do. Women did relatively better than men during that period. Uh, and then also, I, I lay on top of that, not just the economic shock, and this goes, uh, I think, directly to what we're seeing in, um, in Ukraine today. Russians experience that economic transformation, um, not only as an economic shock, but as a psychological shock. The economic collapse was compounded by the sense that uh, they lost the empire. Russia was the center of the Soviet empire. That's collapsing as well. Russians had a sense of meaning and identity that came along with being kind of a global superpower. And that is just creating this brew, this awful kind of toxic brew uh, in the 1990s uh, that I think partly it was uh, baked into the structure of the centrally planned economy, those initial conditions that I was talking about. And, and just made for a very different, uh, very difficult uh, decade. And then Putin comes in in 1988, 19, becomes president in 1999, and he exploits that sense of aggrievement, that sense of uh, resentment that a lot of Russians are feeling after a decade of economic collapse. And uh, he, he plays on that and creates this sense of it's us against the West, and, and we, we see that playing out right now in, in why Russians are so supportive of, of this military intervention, the invasion in, in Ukraine. Lastly, speaking of post-communist countries as a whole, mm -hmm. do we see a similar trend between economic outcomes and voting in other post-communist countries or no? Generally, um, incumbent politicians in post-communist countries do well. So by incumbent, I just mean that those that are already in office, they do better if the economy is doing well. So we see a strong relationship. So that's why we think looking at electoral outcomes for Boris Yeltsin, it's like a proxy for how people are doing economically. People tend to vote their pocketbook. And if not their own pocketbook, what they think is happening in other people's uh, pocketbooks. Um, so yes, people, people are responding politically to how they're, they're doing, uh, how they're generally doing economically. And, you know, uh, in these post-communist countries, they were new democracies, uh, in the 1990s. And there was a lot of thinking, uh, in the early 1990s that maybe, uh, these pocketbook con concerns won't be, uh, first order, uh, concerns of uh post-communist voters but they but they have been very much people people tend to um look in their refrigerator uh see what's there and vote vote accordingly